1: Welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast which explores Scottish history and culture through adventures and investigations.
2: We're interested in mining stories in every way that they can appear, from the marvellous landscapes and natural environments to songs and poetry. My name is Annie and I'm an archivist and historian. I'm Jenny
1: and today I'm going to be a North Sea Dolphin. This week we are discovering the Cowsea Caves, a beautiful series of caves on the Murray coast between Burghead and Lossiemouth. The Murray Coast is a gorgeous stretch of coast in north east Scotland, which faces into the North Sea. The Firth is incredibly rich in marine life and has a large population of my brethren, the Bottlenose Dolphin.
2: You can make your dolphin noise if you want. Oh, yes. <gasps> <gasps> <laughs> A visit to the Kovesi Caves was one of the main inspirations for both Jenny's dreadful dolphin noise. Hey, it is average, okay. And for us to start this podcast, because we saw hundreds of years worth of carvings on the walls. We were looking at these carvings and thought that for every mark, there must be a story. We were so enthralled with all the caves along the Coasey network, and we just wanted to find out the tales of who else had been there before us.
1: We both got a bit over-enthusiastic with research in the caves after our visit, so we've got another two-part podcast for you. This is the first part on the caves, and we're going to explore the natural history of Cove Then we'll delve into the mystery of why so many Bronze Age children's skulls were uncovered in the caves. From that, we move to the Iron Age and look at the earliest marks in the cave walls, Pictish carvings from 1400 years ago. In the second episode, we'll take a time machine forward to the caves in the early modern period, where we meet an infamous wizard who is said to have done deals with the devil. We'll see smugglers and lairds alike use the caves to hide valuables and accounts of how travellers or gypsy communities lived in the caves in the 1800s, not to mention some amazing ghost stories. It's definitely not to be missed.
2: But first, let us begin by discussing our journey to Kousi and the amazing experience of exploring the caves. Oh
1: wait, just before that, you said Kousi. I've been saying What?
2: What is it? (laughs) We've actually heard locals using both, so we're not quite sure.
1: All right, let's just play it in the middle and say cow-f-see.
2: <laughs> so we set out on this expedition with sturdy walking boots and a wee box of slightly burnt coconut macaroons, which I made from my mum's recipe. It's about an hour's drive east from Inverness, and we parked on a very rural, quiet country road and walked towards the Cowsea Cliffs. The last view of a very modern industrial life is an abandoned trailer in a farm field just off the path, advertising a brand of ale that began in Scotland, McEwan's Export.
1: The McEwan's iconic laughing cavalier <laughs> was looking down on us from the side of the trailer. It's this? Just- Big happy looking soldier in a fancy feather hat with all these ruffles. He looked like he was from the 1700s and he was brandishing a big pint of beer at us like he was welcoming us to the caves.
2: But the canvas of the material on the trailer had started to grow moss and lichen so the laughing cavalier looks like something forgotten, maybe not so jolly after all. It did look a bit apocalyptic
1: and if it hadn't been so sunny I'd have been a bit worried.
2: Just after the trailer, we reach a footpath that takes us gradually down to the far west of Lossiemouth Beach. To the east lies this picturesque town of Lossiemouth with gorgeous white sand, but that's not where we're heading. Mm -mm. We scramble over some rocks underneath a cliff of sandstone. It was a bright, sunny, late spring day as we battled the tide to make quite a slippery and cautious walk, not for the faint of heart.
1: Yeah, it's definitely not easy to get to, which is quite interesting in the history of the caves themselves. These caves were used for ritualistic reasons, and often valuable things were left inside them. However, these valuable treasures have been found in modern day archaeology, which begs the question why weren't they stolen or looted? And it's thought that the caves were both difficult to get to, and you wouldn't want to go down there and risk your life, but also they were spiritually sacred, so you wouldn't want to risk either your physical health or your spiritual health in order to get the treasures within them.
2: But what about my physical safety, Jenny? I don't care. <laughs> so we walked along an ever so slightly treacherous surface of seaweed-covered rock. We were so busy trying to avoid slipping that sometimes we forgot to look up at the magnificence of the scenery made of cliffs and caves and rocks, carved as though the sea was a painter and the rocks are her brushstrokes. Oh, that's lovely, Annie.
1: But the significance of the caves lies in their location between the land and the sea and what this intersection has represented for different groups of people throughout time. So from the archaeological excavation of body parts that were found here, it suggests that the caves were also a boundary between the living and the dead for this world and the spirit world. And as we walked down into them, you definitely got hit by this sense of magnificence and importance.
2: Yes, it's true. The caves have this incredible ambience to them. And I find Cowsey being described really wonderfully in a book published in 1813 called Natural Curiosities in the Province of Murray, Worthy of the Attention of the Tourist. Actually, would you like to read it? You need to do a Georgian English accent.
1: Oh, that's one of my favourites. <clears throat> The whole ridge along the cove seashore consists of one uninterrupted mass of free stone lying in horizontal strata, one kind white, smooth and compact, and the other kind more yellow, softer. The penetrating power of the surge of winter storms and the play of the ocean and the whirl of the rebounding wave upon the projecting cliffs has formed several detached pyramids, towers and arches of various heights and form, in some places resembling the broken in shapeless windows in a gothic ruin having the sea boiling around their bases at each flow of the tide how was that yeah i'm sweating that was a lot
2: thanks jenny <laughs> i'm glad i find such lovely extracts for you to butcher them with your accents all right i practiced
1: that for like a week so <laughs> <laughs>
2: It does, it does
1: sound a lot more epic than when I was there. I was just looking at the caves and I was like, oh, wow, that's, that's some nice rock. And then the tide's just lapping at my boots.
2: However, the landscape of Kaisi is incredibly important because it is the natural form of the land that has dictated why and how people are drawn to it both as a Bronze Age mortuary and then, in later years, as a special place to visit, or live in some cases. At the time of the earliest visitors, the sea was only a little below the entrances to the passages. Access would have been possible only at low tide. So what is the science behind the land, and how did these caves come to be?
1: Well, the geology of the caves is fascinating. They go back to the Devonian Age, which is about 360 million years ago.
2: Okay, so you're digging us into deep time again, Mm -hmm. which I'm really interested in. But can you just explain what deep time is? Oh, yes.
1: Okay, so deep time is what we call geologic time. Essentially, deep time is the biggest measurement of time there is for Earth. So we split Earth's existence, which is about 4.6 billion years old, into eons, which are about a billion years each. And then these eons get divided into eras, periods and epochs, all the way down to minutes and seconds.
2: So when I look at the cliffs and I can see different layers of rock that have built up over millennia, that's deep time, right? Exactly,
1: yes. And the Devonian period was right on the cusp of when trees first evolved. So imagine a land with lots of bare rock and low-lying vegetation. Now this was all being eroded by wind and water and the sediment was washing off into a large basin which was being pulled open just after the Caledonian Orogeny, which I spoke about in the Loch Ness episode. So if you're interested in that, check it out. But the Caledonian Orogeny is what caused many of the massive mountains from the Great Glen here in Inverness to the Appalachians on the east coast of America. And these mountains pushed up during the orogeny, but afterwards they pulled apart again and the Atlantic Ocean opened. Now it's here that a huge basin formed and was filled with all the sediment that had been washing off the land. With few deep root systems to protect the rock, it eroded really, really quickly and created very nice, defined sediment layers, which over millennia were compressed down into the solid sandstone that we see today.
2: Okay, so it was sandstone like this that Scottish geologist James Hutton looked at to develop his theory of the great unconformity and his ideas on deep time. Yes, my boy. I love learning the history of the rocks and the land because places like this are just a phenomenal visual display of the age of the world. Yeah,
1: exactly. And because it's sandstone, which is a soft stone, it's easily eroded by years of the sea lapping against it. And it's because of this that the caves and towers of rock along the Cove Sea Shore have formed. There's even a natural Arc de Triomphe with, like, birds and nesting on top of it and grasses. It's really phenomenal.
0: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B.
2: So nature has made its mark, and now we consider how people have interacted with this space. And we'll begin with the first traces of humans at Cove Sea Caves, which we find in Bronze Age, artefacts and human remains. So just briefly, before we get morbid in the mortuary, who were the Bronze Age people? Well, Bronze Age people are characterised for their use of
1: copper and copper alloys for metalwork, including tools, ornaments, weapons and jewellery. In Britain, they existed between approximately 3,000 and 4,000 years ago. Everything we know about the Bronze Age peoples comes from archaeology. Now, the Cove Sea Cave excavations reveal mid to late Bronze Age activity. So we're talking about 1,000 BCE, 3,000 years ago.
2: Okay, so a lot of bones were found in these caves, mm. and we called it a Bronze Age mortuary beforehand. But there's so much more to this. The story begins with an intriguing archaeologist named Sylvia Benton who did an excavation in the Causi Caves in the 1920s. Her first impression of the Causi Caves were things of normal people's nightmares, but of archaeologists' dreams. The floors were absolutely covered in both human and animal bones. Every layer of ground that she was lifting up revealed more and more bones. Unfortunately, A professor named Alexander Lowe at Aberdeen University somehow convinced Sylvia not to keep all of the bones. She wrote to him, I'm keeping all skulls and leg bones and I'm carefully noting all bones in the second layer. You will be glad to hear that the rest goes to the dump. What? In her field notes, she documented finding more than 1,600 human bones. Can you even imagine trying to dispose of so many human body parts that you've just dug up from the beach? Uh, Imagine, yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But 1,600 bones, are these all from the same bodies? Where are they coming from?
2: We have no idea how many different people these bones belonged to because we don't have all of the bones today. Mm. It could be 10 people, it could be 100 people. But as we learn later on, these bodies are being taken apart. So it's a kind of human jigsaw, I guess.
1: (laughs) An ancient human jigsaw (laughs) with none of the pieces and all of the sand. (laughs) But amongst these bones are several skulls and cervical vertebrae. Those are your neck bones. And these bones tell stories. The skulls have marks from being pierced. We don't know for certain why the skulls were pierced, but we can speculate that the holes were for some sort of decorative display of the head, such as hanging from the wall or impaling on a spike, but most of the skulls were found at the opening of the cave, which suggests that they were displayed at the front of the cave as a warning or a get off my beach sort of message, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And the neck bones, they have deep cut marks in them, which indicate beheadings. However, not all of this is as straightforward as it seems, because the necks and the skulls don't match up. They aren't parts of the same bodies. And as well as this, the larger bones have marks consistent with defleshing, suggesting the curation of human remains.
2: Wait, so what we're seeing is different ritualistic uses by different people in the Cove Sea Caves, both involving separating the head from the body. How many years apart are the skulls and the neck bones? Well, that's what's interesting, is the
1: skulls are Bronze Age and the neck vertebrae are late Iron Age. That's over a thousand years between these decapitations. The Bronze Age skulls were mostly children's skulls. Sylvia Benton wrote that many of the human bones were turned blue and white and black, like a new type of pottery. And this suggests that they were burnt. What all of this indicates is some sort of sacrificial rite or sacred ritual involving humans and death. While unfortunately we will never know the full story behind these bones, I like to think of the caves as a place used by parents whose children have passed on. Child mortality rates would have been really high around these times and bones from all over northern Scotland and possibly even as far as Ireland were found in the caves. This suggests that they were transported to the caves specifically for their rituals, Maybe there was a well-known druid or a spiritual figure who was known for performing sacred rituals on children who had died and gave their spirits safe passage into the underworld. Either way, the caves are a raw and powerful location for rituals, being trapped in the liminal space between the land and the ocean, between life and death.
2: Yes, this is such a dark but powerful space of great significance. But there's more stories to these bones because they aren't just human. Mm. The people are buried alongside animals. There are multiple Bronze Age animal burials, including goats, sheep, cattle, boar and dogs. This suggests a more sacrificial angle than just a spiritual ritual, sacrificing an animal possibly in hope of ensuring good weather for crops, harvest, travel or perhaps asking for strength in an upcoming fight, or even to heal an important figure in the community. Mm. Kaisir caves are broken things, human and animal bodies taken apart, there's even broken metal rings. There's possibly an idea that as heads are removed from bodies, as animals are buried alongside humans, the lives that have been broken can transcend into something else through the power of this place and these very mysterious rituals.
1: There was also evidence of an Iron Age forge found in the cave, which would have been used for smelting in the cave as a crucible. There seems to be a continuing elemental relationship between humans and fire in the Cove Sea caves, a strong contrast to the wild sea outside.
2: Sylvia Benton also uncovered a domed hearth. A hearth? That's a fireplace, okay. and it was the only human designed structure in the cave system. Alright. She found a further hearthstone at the entrance of the caves and she writes of finding several patches of scorched ground throughout her digs. Furthermore, there's evidence of burning on bones and multiple spaces for fire, both for metalwork and possibly for ritual. And you're right, it's an overwhelmingly elemental ambience inside the caves, as well as the evidence of fires throughout time and the sea right outside You can always hear the whisper of the wind, even on the quietest of days, as though you are inside a seashell. And at the back of the caves, it feels as though you are being swallowed by the earth. A lot of the archaeology that Sylvia Benton discovered fed into our understanding of migration patterns in northern Europe. This is because there were distinctive bone implements and pottery, which bear resemblance to those found on mainland Europe. Similarly, there were multiple hair rings found in the main cave, commonly found in burials in mainland Europe. So, the Bronze Age and Iron Age archaeology
1: at Cove Sea helps us understand these early people's relationship with a very specific and unique site to them, but also their broader continental connections. I hate that we're never going to fully understand the mystery of these bones, but we do discover some ghost stories later on, so I'm excited to see if any of them match up. <laughs> The main cave is called the Sculptor's Cave. This is by far the biggest cave in the system and it's the site of most of the bone and metallurgic discoveries. The cave stretches back 20 meters into the cliff and is 15 meters wide and almost 6 meters high. It has a double entrance split by a natural column of sandstone giving it a horseshoe shape and despite the ocean, wind and seabirds outside, when you're inside the cave you feel completely immersed by the rock. Almost every inch of the cave walls is covered in carvings. Most are people's names and dates, and the earliest ones we could see were from the Victorian era. However, these aren't the oldest carvings in the cave. There's a cross from the medieval times, and older still, there are some ancient markings made by the Picts.
2: We talk about the Picts in our first episode on Loch Ness, so if you'd like to hear more about them, give it a listen. It's from these carvings that Sculptor's Cave gains its name. On the walls, we see many common Pictish carvings hidden amongst the modern graffiti. They can be hard to spot, but are identifiable by the shapes, styles, and carving techniques. The symbols include geometric patterns of crescents and pentacles, as well as more nature-inspired shapes, such as a flower and a salmon. Now, we've talked about salmon as well before. They loved carving that. Salmon appear frequently in Pictish carvings. However, the meanings remain a mystery. We know that salmon would have been a bountiful food source for the area and also represent a seasonal shift because of the journeys that salmon make between rivers and sea, returning upstream to their place of birth to spawn themselves. Also, after the Picts convert to Christianity, the salmon becomes the religious symbol.
1: Oh, okay. I mean, it could be a symbol for Jesus or a symbol for the UK's first fish and chip shop. No. Salmon with a site of sacrifice. No.
2: Dinner with a show? No. So good we carved it in stone. Jenny, please, <laughs> let's go
1: back to the facts. Bonafide of fish and chips. <laughs> the salmon was actually one of the clearer markings that I could see. The rest were really difficult. How did they know what ones to look for and what ones are pictish in all the walls?
2: If you're looking for the pictish carvings in the sculptor's Cave... The easiest way to find them is just to look directly above the sign on the wall. Fair enough. However, also look out for green spots on the wall. Green spots are formed around the Pictish carvings. No, Jenny, not because of a ghost, Ugh. but because uh, when they were taking moulds of the carvings mm-hmm. in the 70s, one of the chemicals in the moulds that they were using um, reacted with part of the wall And for some reason, it's more susceptible now to lichen. So you get this strange green tinge around most of the Pictish drawings. Oh, it's like a a highlighter. It's exactly like a highlighter pen from a naughty conservationist (laughs) that didn't realize that by taking a mold of the Pictish engraving, they were actually damaging (laughs) the integrity of the the engraving. Yeah, that's a firing.
1: (laughs) But I feel like you wouldn't find out you were fired until like 25 years later when the lichens actually grow. And so, you know, they're probably fine
2: or dead. Yeah. Viting's on the wall. (laughs) Lichens on the wall.
1: (laughs) Oh, Jesus. And it's interesting because although Sculptor's Cave is the, by far the biggest, of, there's maybe nine or ten caves that you can actually go into. And some of them you, you have to physically lie down on your belly and scoot through like in an army crawl. And even in those ones at the very end, people have carved their names in the rock. And there's just this strange desire for people to mark these rocks and really let people know that they also scoot through this tiny hole in the 1920s
2: what i love about this is it is you're inside the caves and you see hundreds of different names around you Mm. and so much time and effort has gone into people writing on the wall and then you go outside and nature shows you this beautiful arc de triomphe made of stone Mm. and you just think these people really aren't trying hard enough (laughs) It's an absolutely incredible experience to visit the Kaisi Caves. The caves are sculpted first by nature and then by humans. It is an amazing place to think about time, the massive geologic timescales of millennia it takes to build cliffs, or even the timescales of human history we see written on the walls. Sadly, we also picked up several pieces of plastic from the beach, another mark left by humans on this otherwise stunning coastline. Kaisi is a place of marks, from fractures on bones to scratchings on walls. There's no doubt why people are drawn here, because the natural beauty and shelter of the rocks is breathtaking. And it's understandable why people would want to bury their loved ones here, or even just to become a mark on the wall, because it's part of a tradition going back to a deep prehistory.
1: Yeah, there were truly amazing and i'm really excited for the next episode as well where we'll be looking at more of the modern history of the caves picking up from the 1600s it includes a wizard a smuggler and a wedding
2: if you visit kaisi please don't carve on the wall or sacrifice any children but please do rate and subscribe to our podcast (laughs) there are splendid murray coast pictish carvings to see at Berghead museum where there's also a lovely dolphin and bird watching spot More information about Carsey is available at Elgin Museum. A massive thank you to Ewan MacRieth for writing and performing our music, which is ever so jolly. I've been Annie. And I've been Jenny. Thank you for listening to Stories of Scotland. (laughs) You're excited about this and... You've gone through your life boring people with this, but the one person that listens to our podcast is going to be interested, and you just need to tell it like it's a beautiful story that, yep. that you've been waiting to tell your whole life, that no one has ever paid any attention.
1: No one ever pays any attention to the geology, but we all come from rocks, Annie. We are walking rock.
2: <laughs> Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up.